Keeping up with the research and then applying it to your clinical practice is hard. That's where we come in. I'm Sarah Cavallaro. And I'm Mim Rodder. And we are pediatric OTs who, through this research and reality podcast, aim to help you better examine the research and then interpret that into the practicalities of reality for the families you work with. We're so excited to bring you this webinar tonight. I'm going to do a quick shout out to Kate who just came on because uh, she gave us a lovely five-star review of our podcast on Apple Podcast. So thank you, Kate, for that. And please, people, rate and review our podcast. With that, we will introduce the star of the show. Pippa's an amazing feeding therapist and an amazing OT. Pippa, do you want to tell us a bit about you and your businesses in Brisbane? Thanks, Sarah, and thanks. As Sarah said, my name's Pippa Van Wyk and I am the co-founder of Brisbane Feeding Clinic, which is a specialist, predominantly consults, um, consultative feeding clinic in Brisbane, but and we consult around Australia and, in fact, around the world. We do a little bit of intervention and therapy, but I guess our special interest in it and, and the way that we work best is, is providing assessment for families. I also, so I work in that practice with speech pathologist Carly Betts, and I have recently opened a general practice in Brisbane called Playstream and I have a supervision business called AH Supervision. Business woman um, extraordinaire. So that's who I am. And Sarah, did you say how did I get into feeding? Yeah, let's let's go. Yeah, let's do it, Pippa. Talk to us about your, yeah, how did you get into feeding really? Essentially it was accidentally in some way. So my first job was at Woody Point Special School and I don't really know what uh, special school therapists do anymore but back then which was a long time ago you did a lot of feeding and eating <laughs> and toileting and so that's when I started and then I moved to the children's hospital in Brisbane and was part of the feeding clinic so I had a little bit of experience in feeding but that's where I got a lot more interest in feeding. I started to present. They did a couple of workshops um, interstate and in Brisbane, and I presented with those, at those workshops. And then I realised that I really loved feeding. But when I moved back into the community, I continued to do feeding at the Child Development Service. And then I was contacted from Australian Catholic Uni and asked if I would start up their feeding clinic, their student-led feeding clinic. And that had been, so Carly Betts had been asked to do the same from the speech pathology side. And so we met at ACU, but then discovered that when I had been a therapist at Woody Point, she'd been a student. And I, do, I did remember her, <laughs> but she remembered me. And then we'd also met at the Children's Hospital um, in passing in the corridor and had a quick chat. And so I've known Carly for a very long time. Then we worked together for five years at ACU and all that time we discussed doing it privately together and we finally um, got the courage to go out on our own. And so that's how the Brisbane Feeding Clinic started. Um, there was a talk that you first did, and I think it was in at the when you're at Woody Point Special School called "Beetroot is My Friend." And do you remember this? I can tell the story behind that because I still remember it. But do you remember the story behind that? You tell tell the story. <laughs> I'm just worried I might get the version slightly wrong. Okay. You were working with a little girl and she was, you were very excited because she, she would say things, Pippa, Pippa, Pippa is my friend. Pippa is my friend. And you're like, oh, isn't that sweet? And then you're working through some feeding stuff with her. And then she's like, Beetroot, Beetroot is my friend. <laughs> and you realise I'm really on the same level as Beetroot. So, <laughs> and so you titled your talk, Beetroot is my friend. I that video on an old VHS cassette. Oh, there you go. I just, I, I loved, I loved Showing your story. age. <laughs> but it shows that from a very early stage of your career, exactly as you say, you enjoyed it and you were passionate about it. So I guess, Pippa, our next question, our first real question for tonight is about your focus article. I'm wondering if you can summarise your focus article a little bit for people who maybe haven't read the article or listened to the podcast. And I'm interested particularly about how the results of that article or how that article impacts eating therapy and intervention. So 
The reason why I chose it is because um, more recently in the last few years, particularly working with Carly, I guess, um, I've become really, really probably obsessed with the impact of breathing on kids' function. And there's a huge amount of really nice new literature that links breathing with issues across every domain, just about Mm -hmm. you can imagine. It wasn't until I saw this article, which... I finally found someone who linked it to sensory processing as well because I I expect, like me, if anyone's been referred a child for feeding or possibly described a child's feeding, sensory feeding is is what people often say. And so parents would come to us saying, oh, they have a sensory feeding problem. So Carly and I have worked together for five years at ACU in a IP clinic and then another two years on our own. So that's like seven years all up and we are yet to find a child who has a sensory feeding difficulty that doesn't also have um, breathing, oral motor issues, gut issues, parent-child interaction, trauma. So when I read that article, it was just really nice to to put those two things together, I guess. And so in my practice, I very, very or never rarely to never talk about sensory processing with parents in the first instance because there are so many other bigger issues that are impacting a child's sensory system. So parents sometimes then ask me, and I'll go into it a bit more, but I don't bring it up first. I help them link all the other stuff that's going on. It's a great explanation of why you chose that article. How do you explain that the contents of that article, the outcomes of that article, how do you put that in parent-friendly language to help families understand that? And I guess that will help us understand it too. Breathing is the body's first priority. So um, our body will go for breathing first. And a lot of the children that we see, and this isn't just in feeding, to be honest. So a lot of the children I see full stop in my practice have mostly sleep disordered breathing so they snore their teeth grind they have nightmares or night terrors they still wet their bed after age um, five which is linked to breathing there's a whole lot of other symptoms that we're looking at and when your body is stressed because it's not getting good oxygenation it cannot use any of its other um, systems well particularly our sensory systems which we need for everything Mm. but it also then we know that our sensory systems impact our motor systems it impacts our emotional regulation it impacts our ability to use the social skills we have and so I talk about um the fact that we've got to deal with the breathing first yes and that will help our children be the best versions of themselves that they can be yes and then we'll see what's left yes and when you say it does that explain the article a little yeah 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 and when you say deal with the breathing do you mean head to an ENT and figure out why your child is mouth breathing and snoring and you know all of that sort of stuff is that what your next step is then predominantly yes so if there's enough to well there's obviously red flags but I also talk about orange flags. So even if there's a little bit of snoring or occasional night terrors or, you know, they just sleep with their mouth open, ENT will be where we'll go first. Um, I think that all the OTs should get used to looking inside mouths because of all those children that are being diagnosed with ASD, ADHD, sensory issues who are all mouth breathers. Mm. <laughs> Um, emotional regulation and they're all you know so not all of them so many of them are mouth breathers and so if we look mm. in mouths often you will see tonsils not all the time I don't say when I can't see something I just go this isn't my particularly particular area but the more mouths I look yeah. in the more I see oh. the minute you can look in there and go oh that doesn't look like a lovely cave that looks like <laughs> You know, there's massive tonsils and there's no room there at all. I just like definitely go to the ENT. If there's all 
if I see really subtle signs or no signs at all of sleep disordered breathing, you can still look yes. at shape and you can yes. send to an airway focused dentist. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that was my other question because I had a client after reading your article and doing my podcast, I sent my client one of my little people away because I was like, oh, I think I think I'm not thinking about mouth breathing and I need to do that. And mum found this client's mum found a dentist who was specializing in this and um, has come back with what looks to me like a very thorough assessment but I thought I better ask and make sure with somebody who knows more than me is that okay like does it have to be an ENT or can it be you know a dentist or somebody else who knows a lot about that you know the structures yeah so a good airway focused dentist will ask all those screening questions as well and send them to an ENT anyway. But if it's really obvious, I just go straight to the ENT first because if it's not those structures, so you can see tonsils, but then there's adenoids and then there's turbinates. If you can't see all of those, sorry, we can't see all of those, so the ENT might be able to. And then they have to determine, it might be an immunologist they need to see next to look at environmental allergies because things swell yes. and come down and swell and come down and then you're just not yes. seeing the best that you can yep. be. Again, it might yep. be mouth shape and even, you know, your really obvious mouth shape kids, the ones with the really high palate, the yep. really narrow jaws or the really tiny mouths, the regressed jaws, a dentist will look at, an airway-focused dentist. And the mm-hmm. ENT thing, you've got to make sure that it's a paediatric airway-focused ENT because right. they not all made equally we've had a lot of families just be it's okay a bit of snoring is okay what about those kids who and I had this question this week actually in clinical supervision with an OT who also listened to the podcast Pippa so look your article is just far reaching but I had an OT in clinical supervision this week say to me that her own child was a mouth breather and they had her adenoids removed but now she still mouth breathes and she thinks it's become a habit. Yes. That is, what do we um, do about that? <laughs> so I have a mouth breather as well. Interesting, okay. And yep. I didn't even think twice. She's a brilliant, great eater, really reasonably good sleeper, not yep. highly anxious, nothing, no other yep. big issues. So she'd gone to the school dentist and they'd said, oh, she's kind of she's probably going to need some orthodontic work so it so my husband books her into a dentist like cancel that dentist appointment we are going to an airway focused dentist because actually I do know that she's a you know I know she's a mouth breather I just don't take any notice of it so we went and he he said first she's going to I'm going to send her to an orofacial myologist an OFM practitioner they can be anybody we can be OFM Trained. There's a physio locally who's OFM trained, lactation consultants are OFM trained, lots of dental hygienists and dental assistants are OFM trained. What they do is they retrain with exercises the chewing and the swallow patterns. So often mouth breathers still have a tongue thrust swallow. Again, lots of people do. I can't remember what the percent It's a pretty high percent of people still have a tongue thrust swallow, but it doesn't impact them. But if you're going to go down the track of doing some palate expansion, which is what you need so that it opens up your airway so you can breathe through your nose, you don't want those old patterns and habits as your friend's daughter had to regret, like turn all their palate back to to where how it was before and then down the track as adults they'll need that dental work. For your friend's daughter, she just doesn't know the new way of doing things. So she probably, mm. her mouth breathers have often have really weak orbicularis oris. Mm-hmm. So they can't, it's really hard to keep your mouth shut when that muscle mm-hmm. isn't working. And mm-hmm. this lovely thing called incompetent lips. And that, that, that top lip is quite thin and doesn't work very well. Mm. And so it can't close. I mean, yeah. it can, but it has to practice. Yeah. And what would you see in kids? Like, what does that look like clinically? Are they your kids who chew and chew and chew and come and just are chewing on a carrot for 20 minutes yep, can before be. they swallow yeah. it? The easiest thing to look for is just what they're doing with their mouth at 
play and at rest. Yeah, so sure. It's that obvious. Mouth. Or yeah. sneaky mouth breathers. I call them sneaky mouth breathers. Yeah. So you you watch them and the mum says, no, 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 they definitely got their mouth closed and you watch them in play and they just have this little gap. Yeah, right. Okay. They're not breathing through their nose at all. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. And so you you in clinic are just observing that when they're playing and interacting with you and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. And then asking all those nighttime questions, pretty much any child who isn't, who isn't a reasonably good sleeper or who is too good a sleeper. So they sleep 11, 12 hours. Interesting. Yep. It's like you go on, you're straight to the ENT, I don't want to know. <laughs> you can come back to me when you've had somebody look at your breathing because nobody can be emotionally regulation, regulated when they're that tired. Yeah. Make sure that you've ticked off ENT first, then the dentist or and the immunologist if you think it's environmental allergies. And then that's just really about the retraining. And the end of that is, which a lot of people might have seen recently, there's a lot of TikTok about it and is is mouth taping and buteco breathing. But you you don't want to do that if you don't know everything's clear and you can breathe through your nose. Absolutely. So we we have a beautiful 16-year-old come to our clinic recently with CP and the dentist had recommended mouth taping. Which is what, essentially just taping their mouth up? At night. And that, that's to break the habit. And it does, sure. it's a very useful technique at the end. Sure, yeah, sure. But a little person, you know, or a big person with, with tonal issues, I just would not be taping their mouth. And nobody, she'd never been to an ENT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what you're saying is there are things that we can do about mouth breathers but there's a process first. Get yeah. let's get everything checked out first before we move on to more restrictive practices. Yeah, and so yeah. You do a little bit of clinical reasoning once you get the hang of what you're hearing. But until then, I would just go ENT first, and the ENT will set them up to go immunologist, dentist, yeah. whatever. But if yeah. zero, if you see zero and hear zero uh, symptoms of mouth breathing well yes. sorry sleep disordered breathing and you look in their mouth and it looks you know again you don't have to know lots but it looks no. like a reasonable shape and you can see a nice clear airway at the back yeah, yeah then you might go OFM or you might go dentist yeah sure yeah that's great thanks Pippa I guess the next part of that question was about the link to proprioception and in that article it talks about you know, the fact that we see sensory processing differences in kids who are mouth breathers. And I guess for me, I was able to make the links between, you know, some of the tactile and some of the oral motor stuff. And I probably just need a little bit more help from you to think about. (laughs) Right. Help me understand what is the link between the mouth breathers and the proprioceptive seekers? Mm, mm, absolutely. So the authors talk about, and we know this is OTs, that um, the vestibular, the tactile and the proprioceptive systems are the most primitive yeah. um, and primary systems of our sensory systems. So what the authors were linking was conjecture I think really is that yeah. mouth breathing alters that the posture of the child mm. but so linked to that too those disorganized motor functions of those kids and praxis so kids yeah. vestibular proprioceptive and tactile issues are those kids with the poor motor planning and so then you get these kind of open mouth kind of postures they kind um, of have that chin drop don't they like that yeah. head forward yeah yeah, yeah. And so that's how they, and, and, you know, obviously breathing is primitive too. Yeah. So the other interesting thing that they didn't say, but I was, I kind of went, oh, I thought this would be more, make more sense to me, is actually the TMJ, so that temporomandibular mm-hmm. joint up here, is, um, the joint, is the joint in your body with the most proprioceptive receptors in the whole body. Mm. If you chew on stuff right yes they love yeah. perception and so if you're a mouth breather 
and you've got an open mouth all the time, you're not getting oh, good proprioceptive input. Yeah, right. Oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, and that's not being activated by that mouth closure. Yeah. It actually yep. holds our mouth. That, that's, that TMJ holds our mouth closed. Yeah. Yeah, no wonder it's got so many proprioceptive receptors in it, hey, because it helps us know when, where, I guess it helps us know whether our mouth is closed or open. Hmm. And if your mouth is always open, those receptors are hardly ever being activated, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And then if you're a poor chewer on top of that. You don't have that proprioceptive feedback. For the chewing too it's going to be all chicken just and compounds the problem yes <laughs> and i was just going to jump in because you had said you had said it pippa as well but just that and the article identifies it that it's a correlational article it's not a causation so we're not exactly as you say but it's very interesting to speculate on that impact and it's not speculation as in airy fairy speculation it's talking about the practical side so always bear in mind that the article itself is saying correlational in exactly as you say which is first chicken or egg pippa before we move on to some of the other generic questions that have arisen for us with our other feeding therapy articles i wonder if there's anything else you wanted to say about the article that you particularly chose for us to review this term I loved it because I knew that it was just going to open up a whole new world to therapists. So when it has. it's yeah. not my favourite article in the universe, but when oh. you said, what would you choose? I was like, I want an article that is just going to blow people's minds yes. from a feeding perspective and go, oh, it's not what I thought it was. Yes. Yeah. And I that's one of the reasons why I really liked it because I think, yeah, it's it's absolutely taking us a step back from feeding therapy you know, it's not asking about meal times. It's not asking about behaviours. It's not asking about sensory processing. It's looking at the child's function and body and figuring out what's actually going on at a really basic level and getting that right. As you say, let's get that right first before we start to figure out the next layer. When I do my workshops, one of the things I talk about when we get to the sensory bit, which is what all the OTs want, is I just like... Jean Ayres identified that our sensory systems are linked to every system in our body. Mm. And when we decide what we're going to do, we actually have to look at all those systems. And I feel like sometimes we forget that actually yeah. she talked very clearly about body systems being yeah. linked. And that's what our sensory systems are being, uh, are telling us that something's not right. Yeah, yeah. That's and you are right. It's definitely, it was a challenging article to pick because uh sarah and i were both like oh this is a strange one and i still know i actually approached you people going can you just clarify the reasoning behind it but yeah fantastic in hindsight the next question is about can you share with us what you wish you knew all those years ago maybe about mouth breathing maybe it's related to the article that you've shared with us or maybe it's just about feeding therapy in general but what do you wish you knew then when you started out as a feeding therapist? The answer is always breathing. So when we do workshops, when so I don't work in the feeding clinic at ACU anymore, but with our students, with my staff at, at my general practice, when they, you know, they'll start to talk to me about a child or a, or a student will ask a question or in our workshops, lots of people ask questions and Carly and I both often stop and go and the answer is always breathing <laughs> the answer to that question is breathing and it's interesting I've done a lot of stuff I've done bow bath I've, I've studied under Reggie Bain who was a, a prominent NDT therapist and the answer to that was always breathing too and yet I still didn't learn it enough so, yeah, I wish that I'd known how important airway was and that, that, that disordered breathing comes from structural differences in that um, stomatonathic systems. And so whether that is your tonsils, your adenoids, your turbinates, whether that's your mouth shape, I wish that I had, and now I know, but I wish way back then that I had known things like your mouth shape and your mouth size impacts your breathing that 
this blows my mind every time I don't say it Carly says it to just about every parent that the roof of your mouth is the bottom of your nose and so if you have a high palate you have a small nasal cavity that is it. simple as that I wish I'd known that I wish I'd known that your tonsils don't always need to be infected to be enlarged they can just be enlarged they can be huge and cause no issues at all except breathing you see kids front on and that's lovely and then you see them side on and you go well where's the rest of your jaw it has to go, it has to be somewhere yeah and at our workshop last week we invited one of our um, airway focused dentists that we work with and he came and he showed us some fast like great x-rays so even mm. side on you can see that the jaw was regressed but then when you see where that jaw bone sits and you go oh of course it sits there where else would it be it's not that it's not there. Yeah, it's fully yeah. there. <laughs> Just impacting the airway. Looking at that whole facial shape, and again, I think we don't need to be amazing to just be able to look and go, I think that doesn't quite look like there'd be enough space. You can just start making those assumptions and asking the questions and you will find there will always be issues. Yes. So yes. that's one thing that I wish I'd known. And the other one, which we are going to talk about later, is I wish I'd known about responsive feeding and trauma-informed practice. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And we'll, is it yeah. is it kind of hold that thought, Sarah, to a little bit later? I yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> working who's worked for more than 20 years wish they knew about trauma-informed practice. We, we knew nothing when we started. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, of course. Kate on the chat agrees with you. She says, Let, yes, let's get to that bit. I oh. just have a quick question, though. Just like, obviously, like you can get tonsils removed, adenoids removed, as you say, you can with orthodontic work or things like that. But the problem is sometimes you just can't change the structure of the jaw. Well, that's where your airway focused dentist is going to come in and it's not just braces they do palate expansion so they'll put in expanders up in your palate okay. um, there's yeah they'll they can do jaw jaw expansion yep my like little neighbor at the moment with a tiny tiny jaw is doing palate expanders and they have to wind it with a key every night and it's pretty awful but she just has the tiniest little mouth and is a mouth breather so i think it's going to be worth it in the end yeah yeah interesting just double check mm. she's got uh someone changing her her the way she uses her mouth at the end thanks Pippa. i sure will now <laughs> I'm on it now, <laughs> all over it. A question came from one of the other articles. Actually, it came from the American Journal article that we read first, and it was talking about actually video. So in the article, it collected data through video model, video mealtimes in the home environment, and it got us thinking about the use of video and whether you use video in your practice to get information about real family mealtimes. Yeah, and look, some of our favourite, most favourite clients' sessions are interstate or children who really, whose parents really struggle to get to the clinic for one reason or another, and all we do is telehealth with them and so we get to see what's really happening. We do like that, like that best. So, But in terms of real-time behaviours, uh, we use parent report as part of our questionnaire and we have some really specific focus questions in our questionnaire that that to us will tell us what we need to know often by the time they've got to us they're pretty desperate and so they're quite honest yeah. with what they do and don't yeah. do when we see families in our clinic we also as much as possible separate the parent from the child they can still see each other through an open doorway but it means that the child isn't usually in earshot and parents again are a lot more honest when they're not talking in front of their child, although it's amazing what parents do say in front of their children. It just blows me away. And then our favourite is when families send us videos because they just desperately want to show you how bad their child really is. So they might be coming into the clinic, but they just thought I'd send you, this is what he does when I put carrot in front of him. And we, we've got our best workshop video from a parent who did that and all she does is, Charlie, Charlie, just eat the carrot. Just just have a little bit, just show the ladies what you can do with Garrett. 
if um, we have got permission from her and we share that in our workshops because she uses every trick in the book. Practice. Yeah, sure. Carrot. Yeah. Little but more. Yeah. Carrot. Well, Mabel does. I'm not 10 like Mabel, he says. Anyway. Yeah. But yeah, yeah the yeah. telehealth thing is fabulous because we really get to see. Yeah. Right. But then, well, I suppose it doesn't really matter what time of day they're eating, but I think because this was looking at actual dinner times, but you will just do a meal time at a convenient time. Okay. You get to see heaps of stuff. I mean, after after breathing, conditioning is my next um, obsession. And so, you know, whatever parents have said to me and then I see them on video and I'm like, you never said that you that you know that the kid perches perches on some stool somewhere that he falls off every five seconds yeah. so yeah, I do like I do like that real-time telehealth stuff our next question that came from one of the articles that we reviewed this term was about exploring you know non-preferred foods and that that idea of sensory play or having time outside of a meal times yeah I was interested in what your advice is to parents about when to do that do we continue to offer those non-preferred foods with your preferred food in a meal time or do you do that completely separately at playtime or both so i don't really talk about preferred and non-preferred foods that much with parents i do kind of in train in workshops but i really talk about exposure encouraging families to keep it really functional so getting kids involved in family meals in cooking in shopping going to festivals they're all real times where you get to get exposed to different types of food going eating out I, I help you know one of the big things is helping parents realize they can eat out just because their child doesn't eat what yep. they're offered they can feed them before they go and then teach them how to behave in a restaurant and then they're exposed to a whole lot of different different yes. foods as well it's making sure there's non-preferred foods on the table that others are eating as part of that family meal I don't do a lot of therapy food play outside of the clinic. So we will, I will do it in the clinic because that's okay. You know, that's all right because I am a therapist. And so we just, I have a different relationship because I'm not their parent. And so I can get the, get kids to do things that their parents might not do, but the, the translation isn't very good in a lot of ways. And it's, well, certainly not instant. It just yes. helps change that relationship and that trust relationship with food. In the emerging psychology and parenting literature, there's a really strong move away from behavioural approaches and rewards. And we know this is the basis for a lot of our feeding therapy evidence up till now. To take that question one step further, Pippa, really brings in the neurodiversity affirming movement that's happening at the moment. And, you know, how do we incorporate feeding therapy approaches that are neurodiversity affirming and I would absolutely love to hear your thoughts on all of that bundled together if you have any I'm sure you do <laughs> a little bit yeah, there's lots of feeding frameworks out there and you hear a lot of therapists and parents like yeah it's just about you know kiss the sultana just take a bite you know all that first and then kind of language and it's all that unintentional trauma, which is so disappointing. And I, ha you know, I completely admit, as a young therapist in that hospital inpatient setting, I was part of many of those process, you know, approaches with those kids. And in my head, I knew it didn't sit right. And at the end, the kids would come. They would come in for a week and do these intensive feeding programs. Then they'd leave eating you know 20 foods and weeks later they'd come back for a, a review and they lost all those foods because we traumatized them basically anyway and because they're not intrinsically motivated to eat that food right they were doing it to please you or to earn the reward in the moment just, and that doesn't then translate to long-term gains or just that operant extinction you just take a bite and you know that you're allowed to leave unfortunately most of our kids that come for feeding therapy that's not their only traumatic experience so they've come from a history of traumatic birth or 
NICU or special care nursery stays, NG tube feeding, even as an infant, a tiny infant, a choking incident, gagging, reflux is all trauma. My last workshop, my business manager sat in and she said, but isn't a child who has, you know, disordered breathing, isn't that trauma all the time? And I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, these kids are traumatised all the time. So we just pack more trauma onto an already traumatised system yeah. by using those behavioural approaches, unfortunately. I wish they worked, but they don't because they're too e they're easy. When responsive feeding started to become more prevalent, I guess I knew that I'd found that missing piece and it's about building that trust around food and that's why for parents I just send them home and say do do nothing new just get the good habits expose kids to foods around you but you don't have to do anything that helps parents for a start because that they don't feel like they're, they're pressured to do anything more and then when even in therapy I just honor their the child's cues and we just do whatever they want and that that's when they come up with the most interesting and fun activities with food and we'll try huge amounts of food in my clinic in my presence but I just and then they back off and I go oh wow that was a bit interesting wasn't it what happened there okay that's what do you want to do next I was speaking to a therapist today who I've passed on one of my little people onto and she has so this little girl is Five turning six, completely non-oral, peg fed, has been non-oral, has been NG tube fed since like, I don't know, two or even younger. I can't really remember. I've only just met them recently. Non-oral and seem to have got a little bit lost in, a, in the system. So nobody's really seeing this kid. Has had some really intensive, intensive feeding therapy which I found out today, so the therapist shared with me today, it was three times a week and it was all that operant conditioning stuff, extinction. So, you know, as long as she she just knew if she kissed the food, she could get out of there. And sure. she, she's pretty nonverbal. I don't know what else is going on. I, cognitively, I don't know because I just saw her once in the clinic. This therapist has come in and said, you know, I'm trying to get to the bottom of what's going on and I know that she this little girl is super motivated to go shopping with her family she chooses foods she asks for foods or you know points to foods that she wants her mum to buy her mum buys them they she wants them served on at the table she gets really really upset if she's not served a plate of food with the family and then that's it that's yep. as it goes. She's still got lots of vomiting. We don't know where from. So there's mm. lots of issues going on for this little girl. And then this therapist said, this therapist maybe seen her three times. She said, I just thought I'd change it up. And I went outside and we just had some shaving cream and we had some chocolate-scented paint. Is That's a thing. Mm -hmm. I'm a very good yep. therapist. I don't the know. scented everything, Pippa. So I'm sure there's chocolate-scented paint. Went outside. And when we're inside at the table, she's just really hesitant to touch the food. You know, she gets all a bit, oh, I don't know. We're outside, she's having fun, and she just had shaving cream and paint all over her hands, all over her face. There was no stress at all. And she said, I just realised how traumatised this little girl had been about food. At the table. And that had been therapy-induced trauma. Not, I mean, she's got other traumas going on, but around that, that yeah. pre that pressure to eat had been all us yeah. doing that, not me personally, thank goodness. But yes. but me twenty years ago, hundred percent. That's what I wish I'd known as well. And I guess that brings us. It kind of ties us into our next question. Really ties in with for those of you who have already listened to the last episode of Two Sides of the Spectrum, which is Meg Proctor's podcast. She had a neurodiversity affirming dietitian on talking about feeding therapy, talking exactly as you are, Pippa, you know, really beautifully about feeding therapy induced trauma. We have reached out to Meg and she has agreed to be a guest on our podcast, which is a bit amazing. We were a bit starstruck when she replied to us personally. I guess Mim and I were chatting and saying, where is the line for intervention? You know, we, we don't want to induce trauma, right? We know we don't want to induce trauma with these kids. 
you know, is it then that we look at a child's nutritional intake or, you know, how do we judge then what sort of intervention these kids need or how much intervention or whether there's a problem or not? Does that make sense? Sarah, that is... Uh, oh, no, it's a can of worms, I know. A meg question. Should we exist at all? That we might be talking ourselves out of a job. I guess I say for almost everything, it's only a problem if it's a problem. I love that catchphrase. There's certainly nutritional issues, but we know we can get our nutrition nowadays from anything. You know, a couple of Vita gummies and an iron supplement, and who cares? But what's that going to do long term? Certainly, our little people can't don't know what that means as adults, and so we probably have that duty as therapists and parents have that duty to kind of without stressing too much about the future but also say you know you are going to need some social skills to get along in the world because the world is what it is and yes it's getting better but we also don't all you you just can't walk around being rude to people (laughs) if you want a job or if you want somebody to come and mow your lawn and come back or, you know, all those sort of things. Where that line is, I don't know. Often parents do stress about things that haven't happened yet. So they often stress about things like school camp or, you know, what's, what are they going to do when they're 16 and they want to go out with their friends? What what do we do when there's a sleepover? And so I do do a lot of parent coaching around how to, because if I for some of the kids that I see long-term, I do the work, but you know, some of these kids we see and then we send off on their way. But helping parents realise that they can teach their kids how to say no thank you. They can teach their kids how to enjoy going out and not having to eat anything because it's not about the food. They can set their kids up to do sleepovers differently. And I, I always use my eldest daughter as an example. She just desperately needs sleep. She is absolutely hideous if she doesn't get enough sleep and so and you know she's now 15 and a half and she's still I still say there are no sleepovers except school holidays she Mm. cannot do it not even a weekend she just can't and so even when there's sleepover birthday parties she has got really good at explaining what she needs to her friends and I've gone pick her up at like 11 o'clock at night she comes home she gets about six hours sleep. I would drop her home back there at six in the morning. Yep. But she cannot stay up all night. It just is not mm. it just she's yep. just hideous for for days afterwards. So we won't have that in our house. Yep. Anyway, so I talked to parents about that and how we've set it up and we've we've taught her what to say and we ring parents and we do the parent talk and parents go, Oh, can we can you do that? Mm. Yeah. You can drop your kids after dinner. Yeah, we can off take their own dinner with them. Yes, cook for the family and take dinner. You can yeah. offer to have kids over to your house. Like there's, yeah. it, it doesn't have to look like that. School camp as well. We say, okay, you know, what do they eat? Well, they eat white bread and they might eat apples if you're lucky. Or you know, there's a few things, and we go, okay, so we teach. We we find out what's going to be on on the menu because you can do that yeah. now easily and you teach the kids to know which meals they're going to what they're going to eat at which meals and which meals there is just nothing and sometimes they're usually pretty good and they'll make sure that the child has something and I say to the parents there is no school camp ever anymore that is long enough for parents they are only ever two nights long your child is just going to come back very hungry and having the time of his life on school camp yeah, and there's always a lot of, in my experience at school camps, there's always a lot of Milo on offer and a lot of our people drink Milo so they can often you fill up. Sure they know what they can eat and how what they're going to choose at each meal and then say, yeah, you're going to be hungry too. That's okay. <laughs> Just make yeah. sure you lots yeah. of bread at that meal. Oh, this leads into somebody's question about PFDs. Really, they're definitions and I think they're useful in terms of just I guess sort of knowing when there's a problem, but it's not, it's a problem if it's a problem, and it's a problem is it's a functional issue, and it's a problem if they are in danger, like nutritionally compromised. So it doesn't really matter whether it's a PFD or a picky eater or or a kid with ARFID. If they meet criteria, they meet criteria. Nobody can blood test it or X-ray it and say, yep, that's ARFID. You just meet 
criteria. But interestingly, when you look at all the criteria, they always say in the absence of anything else. And again, Carly and I would say we have yet to meet anyone who has a paediatric feeding disorder, is a picky eater, or even has been diagnosed with ARFID who does not have breathing as their number one issue <laughs> or, or underlying gut issues and undiagnosed reflux that's keep that's continued. I mean, that's another whole story. Breathing's the most <laughs> important. There's so many other things. But they're useful in terms of, you know, if you want to get your head around the theory, but it doesn't help really at the end. It doesn't tell you why and doesn't tell you what you're going to do because what you're going to do is going to look pretty much the same. Being devil's advocate a little bit, but even within responsive feeding, some of the goal is to try and increase their repertoire so that they can feel more comfortable in some of those situations that you've described, like going to school camp. And that's where that internal drive has to come. And so a lot of it has to wait a little bit longer for when, I mean, I, again, I just say, not so much those really, really restricted eaters, but more of your picky eaters. And I guess your restricted eaters to a point. If, you, if they've then got to the point where they trust food and they're happy around food and things like that, I say, who's to say that you're not going to pick up a food when you're 15, 25, 50? Um, but one of the articles we read was talking about the importance of that exposure at a young age and where we develop those habits at that young age. And I think that's potentially where parents and even therapists would be concerned, like this push for early intervention. And I'm not saying that's a bad push. Yeah, again, where does that balance go? I think you're saying there isn't a window that we've missed. It's just slower as they get older. So I just love my using my children as examples for everything. I think I've used two of them. Now here comes the third child. The middle child is my fussier eater. He would be, he picks up a new food every six months, six to twelve months, and he's fifteen. Because we hold our position. So so we're not even, there's so much to get into. But if you want to really look at a nice model for parents around that responsive feeding, looking at Ellen Satter's work, and so she's E-L-L-Y-N, if you haven't heard of her, Ellen Satter, S-A-T-T-E-R, and her website is ellensatter.org. And she has division of responsibility. And bottom line is, if parents stick to their job, they stay in their lane, kids stay in their lane, you will get new foods. I can I attest to that from having an early fussy eater as well to now a child who's begging me to take her to a degustation. <laughs> and, and the other thing she says, there, she does have a webinar on division of responsibility in ASD. It's probably getting a bit old now, that webinar, but I will spoiler. The bottom line is it's the same. It just takes longer. Assessment looks yeah. the same, intervention looks the same, time is different. Um, heads up, our topic for next term is ADHD and we are having the amazing Kate Horstman be our guest speaker next term and she's choosing an article for us based on um, ADHD and anxiety, which is really exciting. And I actually overheard her at a first birthday party last week explaining to a mutual friend about the reasons why kids these days have more anxiety and I was blown away so I think she's going to be a really great speaker to listen to as well next term Pippa thank you so much for coming we are ever grateful and that article you chose was bang on because it really got us all thinking differently about feeding myself included and I don't do a lot of it but as soon as I had one come into the clinic I was like off you go to the mouth breathing people and that's exactly your aim and so it worked really well thank you and thank you so much everybody for coming along tonight we really appreciate you giving up an hour to support us we are just so happy that people are listening to our voices on the podcast and on the webinar and engaging with us on social media so Thanks so I much. will, sorry, I will quickly jump in. Just there was a sort of a question, but where can I go to read about the breathing feeding connection? So I have reshared the article and the link to our podcast, but also I know we just missed out. We, we should have timed it differently, but we just missed out on the opportunity to promote uh, Pippa and Carly's workshop. But if you are in Brisbane, I know that they will hold some workshops in the future and you can find out about those through Pippa, the Brisbane Feeding uh, Clinic. Yep, you can, yeah, absolutely. Well, 
So we are going to offer. We're just we're just in negotiations, uh, Carly, myself, and two husbands because it takes their time as well. Just babysitting children. Um, as to whether we offer the full two days online at the end of the year, or whether we're just going to do our day two, which means you have to have done day one at some point. I'm voting for the whole two days. Carly's voting for just day two because we did do day one online earlier. The other thing to do is on Facebook. Find Dr. David McIntosh, E-N-T, so he's M-C-I-N-T-O-S-H, E-N-T, and links to research. He talks a lot, a lot about, he's an E-N-T in Brisbane, but he also has a clinic in Sydney, and he would be our number one choice, really, to send kids to. So he, yeah, he's got lots and lots of articles. They just come up all the time on his Facebook page. But I'll share, you, share some of those, and I'll also share some links to some of his. You can do the same, look up. David McIntosh YouTube and he's got some really interesting videos of him just talking but he talks about the link of link to breathing and the worry brain breathing and night terrors breathing and ASD which is a really interesting one and breathing and feeding and if you wanted to send any of those to um, Mim or I Pippa we can always share them in the closed Facebook group as well okay, yeah yeah that's another yeah. And if you want to get so, on our, our mailing list for any for our courses that come up a couple of times a year. So we do do online once a year and then face-to-face -face once a year. So just email me and I'll throw you on that mailing list. We don't mail out very often just when there's something coming up. If you've got any kids you want a single session consultation with, we can do that and you can join. We love therapists to either turn up in person or just Zoom in. And so we try really hard to make the appointment fit for everybody. But yeah. we can also then do a separate consult with you afterwards if you haven't been able to make the appointment. All right, everybody, time for all these good OTs to go to bed. You've got children to play with tomorrow, I'm sure. Thank you so much for jumping on and we will catch you all next term. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Thanks so much. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. We love providing this podcast to you free to enable you to put great research into reality for your families. We would love to engage with our listeners more and if possible, have you support our podcast. There's a number of ways you can do this. One, tell your friends and colleagues about us. We are aimed at occupational therapists, but some of our topics are certainly relevant for other professions as well. Two, rate and review us on your podcast app. This helps others find the podcast. Three, email us if you like at researchandreality, that's R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H-A-N-D-R-E-A-L-I-T-Y at exceptional-kids.net. Check out our Facebook page where you'll be kept up to date with all our news, www.facebook.com slash researchandrealityot. That's research A-N-D reality O-T. You can also become a Patreon supporter from as little as a dollar a month. This podcast takes time, so if you'd like to support us, you can. When you support us through Patreon, you get extra perks as well. For a dollar a month, you get to be a research rookie and get access to our closed Facebook group. It's different from the page as the group allows you to interact with ourselves and each other to share about articles that we review and much more. For $10 a month, you get to be a research roadie and you get access to the closed Facebook group, get a blank critique form and a copy of the article in advance, if copyright permits, and a transcript of our podcast so you don't have to frantically take notes while listening. You'll also get access to our bonus episode each term where we interview an expert in that term's topic who has picked one of the articles. And for $15 a month, you are a research rock star and you get the benefits of the research rookie and research roadie, but you don't just get a recording of the bonus episode, you get to be part of it live and pose your questions to our expert in real time. You can sign up through Patreon by going to patreon.com slash researchandrealityot.com. That's research, A-N-D, reality, O-T.com. So there's heaps of ways to get involved, support us, and engage with the Research and Reality podcast more.